Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome everyone to Soccer Made in Portland. I'm Jamie Goldberg. I'm here as always with Caitlin Murray. And we've been off for a week, so there is quite a lot of soccer to talk about it and soccer as well as uh, things going on off the field as well. (laughs) Yeah, I think sort of the biggest lingering thing on our minds happened in the stands on Friday, not on the field. But there is a lot. There was a lot of soccer to get to, so we should get moving. (laughs) Yeah, Um, we don't have any predictions from last week because we didn't record. And I I think, as you said, a a lot happened in the stands. I think that's where we should start. Um, but I, I think we'll just go right into discussing the Seattle game and, and the things that can't happen on the stands. And, and we'll sort of, I think, in our Seattle discussion, when we get to the soccer portion, um, talk a little bit about how the Atlanta game sort of plays into how we feel about the Seattle game as well. So even though we're not necessarily recapping that game, uh, given that it's a week old at this point. But yeah, let's start about what happened in the stands. Uh, mm-hmm. If I guess for listeners that they've been under a rock for the last week um, <laughs> or months, really, uh, the Timbers Army and other supporters groups throughout MLS have, have been pushing back against an MLS ban uh, that bans political signage at games. It's a, a pretty vague wording uh, of the ban, but one of the biggest signs that it, it bans is images that have the iron front. Uh, that's images that are on big signs. People can still wear the iron front symbol uh, on their clothes but the Timbers Army and other supporters groups and fans will say that the symbol uh, is representation of anti-fascism it sort of came to head on Friday uh, for a long description there with the Timbers Army deciding to go silent for the first 33 minutes of Friday's game quietest I've ever seen Providence Park and Seattle Sounders fans joining in as well Uh, Caitlin, I guess to start, I mean, what impact do you think this had? Well, first, I just want to talk about what it was like experiencing that protest, because I think you and I talked beforehand, we weren't really sure how impactful it would be, how much you would notice it, whether it would change things. And I mean, we talked about it during the game. I think it definitely changed the atmosphere. It felt like... No offense to any other teams in MLS. I don't know. Maybe I was at a Colorado Rapids game or something. <laughs> like, it did not feel like a Timber Sounders rivalry. That's for sure. And I think it really changed the feeling of the game. There wasn't the energy, the festive sort of pulsating atmosphere that you expect. So at least I think starting there, it changed the feeling of the game. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I think the Timbers Army and the the Sounders traveling fans as well, you know, made their voices heard by being silent. Uh, I I think from people watching on ESPN, I I don't know, based on looking at Twitter, whether they could tell how much of a difference it was. I don't know if from the videos that me and you post on on social media, whether that was as impactful. But just being there in that moment and, and having been to so many Timbers games, not having the Army cheering not having the drums not having the tifo 
it was unlike anything I've ever seen at a Timbers game. And I, I think yeah, it's impossible to ignore when, when you think of Timbers games, one of the things that sets them apart and, and why Portland is considered such a big soccer city and, and highly regarded throughout MLS is the fans. And mm-hmm. they showed what happens when they go away. Yeah. I mean, I think Timbers games are so much fun because of the Timbers Army. I remember my first Timbers game. I sat with the Timbers Army. It was the most fun I've ever had at a sporting event. So I think credit to them, the Timbers Army wanted to make a statement and an impact, and I think they did. I actually went back and watched ESPN's broadcast because I was pretty curious whether you noticed. And I saw some people saying that ESPN didn't talk about it. They did. Um, The lead announcer, I I think his name is John Champion, he talked about it before kickoff. During the game, they didn't really talk about it. But then in the 33rd minute, they definitely addressed it. And it was impossible to ignore. There was loud chanting. The camera was showing all the flags, which included, by the way, many Iron Front flags, which were supposedly banned. I think we counted, you know, like a dozen out yeah. there in the sands. <laughs> so um, I, I wasn't expecting that part of the protest. I knew about the silence and the notifo. To see all the Iron Front flags actually surprised me a little bit. And apparently, no one had their flags taken. No one was ejected from the game. So it seems like we're kind of at an impasse with what's going to happen from here. Yeah, and it's interesting. When you look at the Thorns game as well, uh, this is an MLS ban, but the Timbers organization had said in a statement that they're implementing it at Thorns and T2 games as well because uh, they basically because they have the same stadium staff working all games and they want the consistency there. Yeah, there there was an iron front flag up uh, that went up right after kickoff that was up for the entire Thorns game mm-hmm. that wasn't taken down. I don't know if this has to do with security not seeing it. I don't know if security just felt like it wasn't worth it in the moment or, or something like that. The Timbers, uh, we a few people in the press box at the Thorns game asked the the PRP people yeah. for the Timbers about it. And they didn't really have an answer. So it's not like the Timbers have suddenly decided we're not going to enforce the ban and we're going to make that public. Yeah, Uh, I think we're waiting to see what's going to happen. right? Yeah, we're sort of waiting to see. And I I think that brings us to the, you know, the other point of this. I I mean, I I think as a protest, this was very effective. Uh, If this is the message, of course, they wanted to get across. Will it have the impact that they want? Do you think Mm. that MLS is going to change its policy? Do you think the Timbers are... I mean, I don't know that the Timbers can really flat out go against MLS, given that it's a league policy. So what do you think this is going to lead to? Well, I didn't answer your initial question, which is what impact it had on the game. And I guess that's sort of tied to whether we think this policy is going to end up changing, because... Merritt Paulson seemed to think that it had an impact on the game. Fans were tweeting that he had an interaction with them where he suggested that the lack of home field advantage without the cheering was maybe why the Timbers lost. Um, I disagree with that. I mean, as we discussed, it definitely changed the atmosphere. But I look at that game, I think a bigger impact was Jorge Marrera having a yellow card suspension, not being able to play, Zarek Valentin getting burned by the speed of Jordan Morris down the side. I mean, there are a lot of other things you can point to in terms of the Timbers losing that game. I don't think it was the Timbers Army protests. If the Timbers feel that way, you know, I wonder how much they will push back with MLS and how much 
uh, they have the ability to do that. But I don't really know where things go from here because MLS has opened this Pandora's box where they tried to eliminate the Iron Front flag. And all that has happened is that the Iron Front flag is more popular than it has ever been before. And I don't know how you come back from that. I mean, this is this is the definition of something backfiring, right? Um, <laughs> I did uh, an article for Yahoo Sports. I spoke to Mark Abbott from the league. And the only supporters group that had raised the Iron Front flag as an issue before this ban went into effect was the Timbers Army. And now where have we seen it? We've seen it in Atlanta, Columbus, Cincinnati, Kansas City, L.A., across the league. So I don't know what they're going to do about it now because they made this an issue. They could have done nothing, and I guarantee 99.9% of people in the stands would not have seen the Iron Front flag, would not have known what it meant, and it would have continued to be a relative non-issue. So I'm sort of at a loss for what you do now because they sort of made this an issue that wasn't an issue before. I mean, what do you think? Yeah, uh, I mean, I completely agree with that. I, I The crazy thing about this is going around MLS, being in a lot of stadiums last year, it, it's not like overall you were going in the stands and saying, wow, there's a, a lot of political stuff happening right now that, that's really, I can see it making fans uncomfortable. There wasn't really a noticeable difference in terms of, I guess in terms of, you know, obviously MLS has been on the forefront in things like supporting the LGBT community. There's always rainbow flags and stands, things like that. But I never got the sense that there was an issue to the point of so many political items in the stands that something needed to be done in the fan code of conduct to stop that. Mm-hmm. So like you said, it's sort of an issue of MLS's own making because had they done nothing, there would have been an iron front flag in the North End. One iron front flag in the north end during games and the majority of people wouldn't have had a problem with it wouldn't have known what it is i mean mls has definitely educated uh, (laughs) a great deal of the population about what the iron front flag is and that is clearly not what they wanted out of this so (laughs) i don't know and the interesting thing is that So the 33rd minute was the protest, and there was the explosion of applause, all the flags go in the air. I mean, sitting in the stadium, I got chills. Like, that was a very impactful moment. The second half, the Timbers Army goes back to what they normally do. The first thing that jumped out at me is, where did all the Iron Front flags go? There was one guy, shout out to that guy, who just waved that flag for the entire second half. I don't know how his arms didn't get tired. He was in the front row. But otherwise, no one else was really waving an Iron Front flag. And I reached out to some Timbers Army people to see if the flags had been confiscated or if people had been ejected. And basically what I heard back was the fans just went back to what they normally do. They normally don't wave Iron Front flags during a game. So if they had done nothing, I guess the second half would have looked a lot closer to what would just be happening normally, which is there wouldn't really be any Iron Front flags. I think that one guy in the front row was protesting a little harder than everyone else. I think if this hadn't happened, you probably wouldn't be seeing the Iron Front flags at all just during games. So uh, I thought that was interesting. That kind of showed like this ban was against something that you really had to kind of try to notice because in the second half you weren't really noticing an iron front flag yeah absolutely i I think that at this point mls is in a position where they're they're i mean i think they have to address it at some point they have to look at this ban and think about seriously and maybe they have pressure from owners or, or 
things like yeah, that, that they feel like they can't revoke it, but they're creating a controversy that doesn't look good for the league. It's I saw I saw an article on this in the Hill in the Washington Post. Yeah, I, I mean, I saw that too. <laughs> we're we're getting past just this being like a minor issue in M- in MLS. It's getting national attention. It's ESPN. leaving the soccer bubble. Yeah. And soccer, to be clear, lives in a bubble. Like yeah. if this was the NFL, this already would have been a huge story that blew up. Things in MLS can sort of stay contained within the MLS bubble, and this is leaving the MLS bubble, and it's, again, a problem of MLS's own making. (laughs) Yeah, I I don't expect to see a resolution this week, but, I mean, if the fans keep protesting and this continues to be an issue and MLS gets to the point where they recognize, which I think is already the case, but they uh, recognize that this can't be swept under the rug, I think that we could see uh, a move happen. I, I mean, I, I think this was an impactful protest. And I, I do want to mention, you know, Don Garber wasn't in town for this game, mm-hmm. but a number, Dan Kordimuch and a number of the MLS media uh, yeah. office was in town for that game. So yes, they were they there were. and witnessing this. Yes, exactly. And when you say that you think a move needs to happen, I'm just curious, do you think, like, what is the move that MLS backs off this policy? Because... I guess there are two ways you can go. MLS can back off this policy or they can double down. But when I think about the possibility of doubling down, what are they going to do? Keep throwing out tons of Timbers Army people at games and like getting into fights in the stands like we saw in Atlanta when some fans refused to remove their signs and so they were forcibly yeah. uh, removed from Mercedes-Benz Stadium? Like That just makes it even worse. So like... Yeah, what, need, what is the move? <laughs> yeah, they need to be careful about how they approach it. I, I think it would be reasonable for them to allow iron front banners at this point uh, because yeah. otherwise they're not the controversy is not going away. But they can't. I'm not sure if it's as simple at this point for because they create the issue from removing political from the fan code and just saying that's it, we're good. Because then suddenly we might have <laughs> yeah. a bunch of campaign slogans in the stands too, and yeah. there might create an even different issue that is not here i think they're gonna have to craft some more specific language and make Mm -hmm. sure it's presented to each team across the league specifically what's allowed and what's not because i think there is an element this also where just the vagueness of this has had led to uh, different roles being implemented in different places which has also caused controversy but obviously the iron front is has been a major sticking point out of this and and so i think specifically that symbol I just don't see how they keep that ban going if the protests continue. Yeah, they definitely have to address the Iron Front specifically. I I spoke to um, uh, Sheba from uh, Timbers Army. She's the uh, head of the board uh, for the trust for the supporters group. And she said that What the Timbers Army is demanding is not just that the Iron Front is allowed, but that the word political be removed from the code of conduct and that the code of conduct is rewritten and I'm not sure if, if that is going to happen. I, th- I think that is asking a lot from MLS. And I think, you know, we saw Trump flag in the stadium earlier this year. I think MLS does want to prohibit political signage. I think they just need to figure out whether the iron front should count or not. I see both sides, truly. I understand both sides. I think just from the standpoint of that it wasn't even an issue to begin with, they should have just let it be exempt from this policy. But 
we're here now and we have to deal with it. So anyway, I don't think we're going to resolve it on this podcast, but good discussion either way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, let's, I think we've talked a a decent amount about that. Let's talk a little bit about the game because I I think... It there was get, soccer that was played. Right? Yeah, and I, I think it did somewhat get overlooked. I mean, the, the protest in the stands was the biggest story coming out of Friday night, and I think that's that's great. The, the Timbers already made their voices heard. They were impactful. It had the result they wanted. But I almost feel like the soccer got overlooked in, in that whole night, and this was a really, really bad result for the Timbers at, at, a, yeah. at a bad time. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think we definitely need to talk about the specifics of this. Um, let's just start with the Timbers at home. I mean, they've now lost two games in a row at home. That's the first time since last August. And, and they ha- this has not happened very often in the Timbers history. And, and they, I mean, part of this season was supposed to be tough road stretch to begin the year. But then they have this opportunity to rebound late in the year. They're 5-3-2 and two at home. And they're now below the red line again. So I, I think let's look at... What Christopher's questions first, he said, what should we take away from these home losses right now? Yeah, I think um, I've had some concerns with the way the Timbers have played. I think we actually talked a little bit before about, you know, Brian Fernandez and should they be using him differently? And I guess I want to reignite that discussion a little bit yeah. because I do think that, well, first of all, I do think that Timbers have had trouble finishing their chances. Um, the The Timbers had the opportunity to equalize and maybe even win that game against Seattle, and they weren't finishing their chances. So I think that's part of it. I also think part of it is using Brian Fernandez as a number nine, and maybe that's not the best place for him to be finishing some of the opportunities that are being created. He's not a big target man. Uh, He isn't that effective when teams sort of sit back and don't give him space to run into. And that is what Seattle did. And, you know, like I said, we've talked about this before. And I think where we left it was Brian Fernandez has still scored a bunch of goals. So let's not overreact. But now we're at the point with the last few results where, Uh, He has scored in two of his last nine games. Before that, he scored in five of eight games. So it seems like teams have maybe sort of figured him out. When he played for Nakacha in Liga Mekis, he scored the bulk of his goals as a right winger. And Jeremy Obobese's best position is as a number nine. So I think the most logical thing to do is to just switch them have Obobese playing up top, have Brian Fernandez play on the wing. Then you can have players like Luria or Polo or whoever else as bench options. And you can tell Marrera to maybe stay home a little more, maybe not push up the field so much. Because I've also talked about this on the podcast. I don't think crossing the ball over and over again is terribly effective Marrera crosses the ball a ton, and sometimes it does create goals, but I also think it creates moments where teams can counterattack against the Timbers. I think it would be okay to sacrifice Marrera going forward if you can get Brian Fernandez on the right side and have Jeremy Bobasi up top. So I think sort of when I look at Atlanta, when I look at Seattle, and I look at those games, that's sort of what I'm left with, that I think the Timbers need to be generating more goals, and I think that's a way to do it. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think you just look at Brian Fernandez's game against Seattle. Uh, I mean, it's a pretty simple stat, but he had one shot on goal, or just one shot, not just on mm. goal. He had one shot in the game, and 
that's just not good enough. The Timbers attack to be effective has to be making the most of Brian Fernandez in the attack. And, and yeah. if he's only getting one shot in a game, that means that something went wrong. And I think that does mean that something has to change. And we've talked, like you said, we've talked about, well, maybe it's too early as long as he's scoring goals. I guess it work. He works in the number nine. He could play the wing. But yeah, I, I think this is a moment in which Giovanni Savarese has to do something different. Teams are clearly figuring out how to mark Brian Fernandez. So why not try him on the wing? And I, I think the other element is I, I was surprised to see Jeremy Abobasi on the bench in this game. I think mm. the Timbers overall have been more affected w- when both Brian Fernandez and Jeremy Abobasi are on the field. Yes. And, and maybe Savarese feels that Loria being a true winger makes more sense with Brian Fernandez as the number nine. I think I can understand that. But I think the Timbers should be doing what they can to get both the Bobasi and Fernandez on the field. So if that means moving Fernandez to the wing and trying that out because Savarese believes that Abobasi is more effective at the number nine, then why not try that? It's clearly not working right now uh, as is. And yeah. I think the other point that we brought up over and over again is that the Timbers have trouble breaking down compact defenses. And mm-hmm. I, I don't think, I think we've had different levels of how much teams are bunkering, but Seattle's definitely a combat defense, and they had uh, Paredes had a really good chance. Blanco had a really good chance, but otherwise, uh, the Timbers didn't have that many clear cut chances that they had to convert. They, that you're looking back at and saying, in any other game, they would have converted. They had plenty of shots, but that doesn't necessarily mean they were the best chances. I think Seattle did a very good job of shutting down both Fernandez and also Sebastian Blanco. So, this team has so much talent in the attack. I have faith that they can get the job done against any team in this league with that talent, but they have to find a way, and Savarese really has to find a way to get this to work all together because I don't think they've done that, or at least not consistently enough this season. Yeah, I think there are some games where they just look totally out of ideas, and that's when you see that they're just pumping crosses into the box, hoping something happens. And against Seattle, they had 45 crosses in the game. I mean, it's just, they need a plan B. They need another way to break down defenses and get in there. And yeah, I think if if things aren't working, which I don't think they are right now, you have to change something. And I think the obvious thing to change is switching Brian Fernandez and Jeremy Obobese. And I agree with your point that they do need to be on the field together. I think Brian Fernandez is definitely at his best when he has a player to work off of. And Jeremy Obobese is the perfect guy for that because some players get the ball and they're always looking for goal. They're always trying to score. Jeremy Obobese is a very selfless player in the way that he plays. He's happy to set up his teammates. And I think those two play really well off each other. So I agree. I think they need to be on the field together. I think they should also be in their best positions and they haven't been. Yeah, I mean, we'll see how it goes with the attack. I I think you could have looked at the Atlanta game and said, Atlanta's a good team. That was a bad performance. Five games in 15 days. We can forgive the Timbers for that. Just call it a fluke. But when you have two games in a row like this, uh, something has to change. I do want to say, because we've been talking so much about um, handballs that have gone against the Timbers, something that I'm surprised people aren't talking about more there was definitely a handball that Seattle had that went against the Timbers. And it's like, every time there's sort of a borderline call, it just keeps going against the Timbers. So 
I'm a little surprised that people aren't more upset about that. Uh, Jordy Delem, I don't know if I'm saying his name right, the ball definitely hit his hand in the box, and it could have gone either way. I just think, you know, luck is part of soccer. The Timbers have been really unlucky with some of the calls. However, Giovanni Savarese says the Timbers have to play in a way where, you know, what the referee is doing is not going to decide the games, and I think that's exactly right. I don't think the Timbers had a good game against Seattle, and you can't really look at that. But I just wanted to note it because we are now on a streak of like six straight yeah. games where handballs have gone against the Timbers somehow. Yeah, I think that that's a good point to bring up. Um, I, I think that it's almost gotten overlooked, partly because I, I haven't seen a video floating around, a good video on social media of that. I think right. If someone had gifted it, I think yeah. we'd be talking about it more. I I rewatched the ESPN yeah. broadcast and uh, rewound that part, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that yeah. very easily could have been handball, but yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about another part of the game. We talked about the attack and kind of what has to change there, but I, I think defense, uh, there was equally uh some issues on defense that uh, <laughs> also deserve consideration um the timbers conceded an early goal and I, I think notably a lot of the players and Savarese talked about this after the game for the second game in a row they conceded a goal directly at the beginning of the second half against mm-hmm. Atlanta that was in the 46th minute against Seattle was in the 47th minute in both those games it made the score two nothing and essentially put the Timbers in a point, a, a situation where they were going to lose. Uh, it, it, you can come back from 2-0. Uh, LAFC came back from 3-1 uh, to get a tie with the Galaxy the other day, but putting yourself at 2 nothing early in the second half is not a high probability. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. How concerned are you with the defense right now? Um, pretty concerned, especially um, we don't know when Larry Smabiala is going to be backed. Yeah. Uh, Julio Cascante came off, and um, I don't think we have an update. Do you know anything more about that yet, or we have not, to wait for Gio to be available? Not yet. Um, Gio, you know, Gio said he was being evaluated after the game. He didn't. He said he was hopeful Cascante would be back at training on Tuesday, but it sounded much more to be a I hope because it would really right. be bad if he wasn't because Mabiela's <laughs> thought it didn't sound right. like there was a medical diagnosis in which he was basing that off of and right. it, he was it, just being hopeful <laughs> yeah it it looked pretty bad on the field um yeah. it, he it looked like I mean, it was stretchered off right yeah am I remembering that like, yes that's never a good sign he was stretchered off it looked like it looked like it could have been a very serious injury I don't want to make any assumptions because right. you you never yeah, know can't. Um, sometimes it looks way worse than it is. Sometimes it looks better than it's actually worse. So we're going to have to wait and see. But yeah, I mean, I think that's the biggest point. Uh, and I'll let you keep talking about that. But Cascante and Mabiala potentially being out moving forward. We don't know how long. <laughs> that's... Yeah, that's, that's like a nightmare <laughs> scenario because yeah. we talked about it in our last podcast. Claude Dielna has not exactly... Uh, won anyone's confidence over the course of his time wearing uh, green and gold. So we're at a point where if Mabiel is not going to be back soon, if Cascante is not going to be back soon, the starting center back pairing has to be Dielna and Tuloma. Because I think, um, I mean, not that he would be necessarily your first choice, but Chidama, I think, is injured as well recently. So they have no other center backs. It's Dielna and Tuloma. And 
Look, before the season started, my concern was the defense. I Coming into this year, I wrote things criticizing the defense and saying that, that I didn't think they were good enough and that a lot of these guys would not be starters on other teams in MLS. And because of injuries, the defense has only gotten worse. And I think in other cases with Dielna, I think he hasn't played as well as maybe there was hope that he would. So I think the defense is in a bad spot right now. I don't want to overreact, but with the injuries, that's a big concern. Um, You know, I think... Valentin has struggled a little bit and you know he's he wouldn't be starting if Marrera hadn't been suspended uh for the game against Seattle but there just hasn't been the consistency that I think I would have wanted to see if I you know were the Timbers front office but I don't know should you talk me down I mean what do you think (laughs) I think consistency is the right word because there have been some games where I I fight I've started or even stretches where I've started to feel pretty good about this defense when Cascante is playing at his best when Mabial is in there Steve Clark I think has shown really well overall at goalkeeper taking over that role so there have been some games and some stretches where it's been like yeah this this is actually a pretty good defense and it's actually a decently deep defense they have three competent center backs they have three competent outside backs that you can feel happy about them starting but then you look at the situation there and now and you look at the performance against Seattle and it, it's impossible to feel that way. Uh, Zarek Valentin had a bad game. He had, uh, I think he can play better than that, but I think he also, I think Jordan Morris also exposed Valentin's weaknesses. Valentin right. is a smart player, but he's not a fast player. Mm-hmm. And Jordan Morris just beat him Yeah, um, in 1v1 situations. And I, I don't know... There, I think there's just some players that Valentin's going to struggle to defend. I think, like you said, Marrera, getting Marrera back in might be a help for the Timbers. We'll see. He has been inconsistent this season on defense, although I think he's mm-hmm. been better recently. But yeah. we've seen inconsistency there. We've seen inconsistency from Jorge Viafania. Again, he's been better recently. Uh, but yeah, the center back issue is um, it could change the season, uh, I, I think. The Timbers were going have, I think, a week or two where they have the normal schedule. They're playing just one game a week. And then they go back to a stretch uh, for, in September of five games in 15 days. And, and so if a hamstring injury that Mabiala has, which can go anywhere from maybe like four to six weeks longer, depends on how bad the injury is. And uh, Savarasi really hasn't given us an indication of that. He hasn't mm-hmm. really given us much of a timeline at all. Yeah. But if that's a bad hamstring injury and we have these five games in 15 days coming up, Mabiala can miss a significant portion of that. If this turns out to be a bad injury for Cascante, he could potentially miss a significant portion of that. And like you said, uh, Janama, we haven't even checked in on him because it hadn't been, it hadn't really mattered up until now. We'll definitely be checking in this week, has been out with a foot, <laughs> in, a foot injury. And so we do not know how bad that is. Mm. To have Dielna and Tuiloma as your starting center backs with really no other option except Essentially, Zarek Valentin is the only yeah, other player. Yeah, that... he can play center. I think he has yeah, played center back has. for the Timbers, but that's not an <laughs> ideal scenario no. for sure. No, uh, I, I think we, we talk about the attack. I think there are solvable problems there. I think the Timbers yes. have the talent to get back. If Cascante and Mabial are out, I don't, think, I don't know if the Timbers have the talent to fix this. And I, I think this could be really, really costly to the season. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a good way to look at it. With the attack... They have the talent. It's just 
making it work. Unfortunately, on the defense, just because of injuries, they might not yeah. have the talent that they need. So we'll see. Hopefully those guys aren't injured. Um <laughs> Because, yeah. I mean, that just sucks for them. And you have to consider that when a player comes back from injury, there's getting over the injury and, like, being, like, physically able to play. And then there's being sharp again. And sometimes, you know, players come back at different speeds. And sometimes players kind of lose that touch or kind of lose their confidence. So it's not a good scenario to look at these players being out for weeks. But we'll have to see uh, what the next update from Geo is. Yeah, I mean, when... Tui Loma came back. Uh, he he went out at the beginning of June and didn't fully reintegrate into the starting lineup until a few weeks ago. So, yeah, it's it that is something we're absolutely going to be following up on. One more thing I wanted to hit before we move on to the preview and, and move on to some other things outside of Timbers is just what I mentioned before: the Timbers drop back below the red line. Uh, yeah. They still hold a game on every other team in the West, but they are back in eighth. David wants to know: are are the Timbers as good as we thought? Well, I think the question is, how good did you think the Timbers were, David? Because um, <laughs> Well, I said they were the best Timbers <laughs> team ever, so we know what oh, I thought. Okay, well, um, my view of the Timbers sort of coming into the season and, you know, last season as well, is that this is a team that has a few really, really good players and then a bunch of average to below average players. And I'm not being harsh. I think that's just... I think that's the reality of how this roster has been constructed. So I think they need their good players to have really good games to succeed. And Diego Valeri has been a little bit inconsistent. He got really hot at the end of last year. But before that point, he was a bit inconsistent. I think we were kind of wondering how much longer Diego Valeri is going to be, you know, the maestro that we know that he is. And... um I don't know if he's been playing to that level that he hit at the end of last year right now. I think Sebastian Blanco has looked a little tired, to be honest. And, you know, you talked about these compacted stretches that the Timbers have had. Giovanni Savarese has been trying to get the most out of Sebastian Blanco, and he hasn't really been getting rested that much. And I think we're seeing that in his performances, where some of his crosses, some of his passes are just going right to the other team. Um, There was a cross against Atlanta where Diego Valeri was like an inch off from getting on the end of that and putting it into goal. If he was rested and fresh, maybe he gets that. So I don't know if we've seen the Timbers' best players playing at their very best. We've already talked about Brian Fernandez, and is there a different role where you can get the most out of him? So I, I don't know. I mean, if the Timbers' best players aren't playing their best, then I don't know if this team is that good, to be honest. And that sounds a little harsh, but... Like I said, I think it's a bunch of really good players and then some players who are just sort of average or maybe even a little bit low average, and they really need the best players to kind of carry the team. So I don't know if I thought the Timbers were um, the best team ever. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I, I don't know if I'm super shocked to see some of these struggles, but I don't know. Now, you know, kind of looking backwards is tough, but what do you think, Jamie? Yeah, I think the Timbers have a handful of players that are 100% above average in MLS. I think are very good players in MLS. I think Brian Fernandez, Sebastian Blanco, Diego Valeri, Diego Chara. And I think for the most part, he's had his ups and downs, but Larry Smobiala, I'd put in that uh, yes, category too. I will say what I said about the defense, Mabiala is the one guy who yeah. would definitely start for other teams around the league. Yeah, so you have 
three attackers, a midfielder, and a defender that you can put up there with any team in the league. Uh, and they would probably be very good players. And I think having that core in a salary cap league, you, you look at this team and you say, that's really promising. And then you add in young young players like Abobasi and Paredes. Uh, you add in um, solid defenders within this league, you would think uh, maybe Jorge Viafania. You you have to be pretty happy overall about what this roster looks like given the salary cap. It's it's no LAFC. Yeah. LAFC has clearly spent bet more and better than the Timbers. There are teams that have done a better job of constructing the roster, but it's I, I think it's a pretty good roster. But yeah, yeah, I mean, you talked about it. Fatigue is definitely I think playing a factor right now. We'll see in the next two weeks when they don't have a compacted schedule before they go back into one. If they can sort of get some rest and and, and lift the level up again, uh, but the other element is, yeah, I don't think Blanco's having necessarily the season he had last year. I think Valeri has been up and down. I think we're seeing Brian Fernandez not as be not be as impactful these last few games. Chara is always Chara, uh, but <laughs> Ma- Mabiala is out. So yeah. suddenly, you look at this roster; it looks pretty good on paper. But if it's not, if those players aren't performing, like you said, they're not as good and. The Timbers have a difficult way to go just because they're below the red line. They have to get the job done at home. The schedule is favorable on that element. But if the team is feeling fatigued and they have those five games in 15 days in September, are they going to make the most of it? So I don't know. I still think there's a lot of talent on this roster, but I think the Timbers are in a much more precarious position than I, I thought they would be at this point in the season. Yeah. I th- Yeah, I think that's true. I think we also sort of took for granted that – the Timbers would just win games at Providence mm-hmm. Park because that's what they do. And <laughs> clearly that's not what they always do. If, yeah. you know, if teams play a certain way against them and if they have to deal with injuries and compacted schedules and they're not rotated, um, you know, these things can sort of coalesce and create circumstances where the Timbers will lose at home. So um, I'll be interested to see sort of how the next stretch of five games in 15 days is handled because I think maybe it could be handled a little better. Maybe you accept that you're going to lose a game, rest some guys. Um, Giovanni Savarese is in every game as a final sort of guy. He wants to win every game, but I don't know if this year that's worked out that well. So maybe, you know, a new approach is in order, but we'll see. Yeah, so before they have to be able to compact a schedule, they obviously have a full week's rest uh, leading up to Salt Lake uh, this weekend, that's Saturday, 7.30 p.m. at Providence Park. It To be noted, because since the Timbers last faced Salt Lake, they went on the road and beat them, I believe that was in May. Um, since then, Salt Lake has been uh, on the upswing. They've mm-hmm. jumped to second in the West after winning four of their last five games, uh, but they are 3-7-3 three, three this season on the road, so they're not yeah. winning a whole lot of games away from home. You think the Timbers can turn it around here? Well, what's funny about uh, RSL being in second place is I think over the course of just this weekend, like four different teams were in second place (laughs) at one point. Seattle was in second place after they won, and then a bunch of teams moved around. So it's very tight in the Western Conference at the moment. Um, But RSL has been playing really well. They are on the upswing. They've won four of their last five games. 
that one loss was to LAFC, which is probably going to go down as the best team in MLS history. (laughs) I think LAFC is going to set a bunch of records by the time this regular season is over. So RSL is looking pretty good right now. And I think it's not just the results. I think RSL has been playing convincing soccer where they actually look like a good soccer team. So I think this is going to be a challenge for the Timbers. I mean, it is at Providence Park. And like you said, RSL hasn't been great away from home, but I do think they are a good team. And like, it's hard to sort of figure out how much better does a team need to be than the other team for home field advantage to not matter. Like, I don't know. All I know is that RSL is a good team and the Timbers are going to have a challenge on their hands. So I don't know if they're going to turn around in this game. Yeah, my biggest question is, what's the center back situation going to look like? If the Timbers, which I'm assuming at this point is going to happen, have to start Dielna and Tuiloma on top of the struggles they've had against Atlanta and Seattle, both in the attack and defensively, I am feeling pretty concerned going into this game. I think that's fair. (laughs) (laughs) All right, that's a really depressing note to end that on, but I I think that the Timbers right now have a little bit to prove after the last two matches at home. It hasn't been good. Things can change quickly in MLS as we've seen. Mm-hmm. But I think right now uh, they they have to make some changes. We just got to call them like we see them, Jamie. So yeah, it's not, call it's not pleasant, them. but it's the truth. So <laughs> well, we're here to speak the truth. <laughs> well, talking about calling them as we see them. Let's uh, let's do Good some segue, hot takes, Jamie. You're yeah. a professional. <laughs> <laughs> let's do some hot takes. Uh, why don't you go first, Caitlin? Okay. Well, um, I kind of had some difficulty coming up with a hot take this week, but um, we are eagerly anticipating the announcement of who will take over the U.S. Women's National Team, and I've seen people talking about whether the coach of the U.S. women's national team should be a woman. And I've seen some people insist that it should be a woman, that a woman has to be the coach of the team. And I, on this very podcast, advocated for Mark Parsons to be considered for the job. So I clearly think that a man can do the job and personally don't think you should limit it by whether it's a man or a woman. But I actually think that there is a larger discussion to have. And talking about whether the U.S. Women's National Team coach should be a man or a woman is sort of missing the more important point, which is look around the NWSL. There is only one woman coaching in a women's soccer league. And notably, it's Laura Harvey. And she came up through England's uh, development, and she was groomed into a coach there. U.S. soccer has not done enough to develop female coaches and to provide a path for women to become high-level coaches. And I think that is what people should be talking about. I think that's what fans should be complaining about and what people should be upset about. Because there are so many former players from the U.S. Women's National Team who have so much experience, who are so tactically smart and are such good soccer minds, and they haven't had the path to contribute to the sport that they played for years for their country. I mean, these are players that have a wealth of knowledge and experience that I think has been wasted because there were not opportunities for them. U.S. soccer did not create these paths, recruit uh, these players to give them the opportunity. And U.S. soccer has sort of just cycled through the same people over and over. 
April Heinrichs was there for like 30 years until she just left last year in the wake of some really bad results for the youth national teams. I mean, Jill Ellis has also been at U.S. Soccer for a really long time. There just haven't been a lot of doors open to women who have come up through U.S. Soccer and playing for the national team. So I think that that's what people should be talking about. It should not be about whether the U.S. national team coach is a man or a woman. Because if I, I think that if you create those paths for women to get into coaching, then the national team head coach is going to resolve itself. The best person for the job is going to be a woman. But you have to first create that infrastructure where women are being trained and given opportunities and experience. And U.S. soccer, I think, has started to address this. Last year we saw... They offered a free uh, licensing course to NWSL players. That's great, but that's like one small step in what should be a lot of steps to come. So I think address that. And then the natural byproduct of that is that the coach is going to be a woman. But I don't, I don't think it should matter whether the U.S. Women's National Team coach is a man or a woman. I think what matters is the opportunities. So that's my take. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's hard to disagree with that. Um, I don't know how hot it was as a take, but I think... Well, if that was an article, the headline would be like, U.S. national team coach shouldn't be a woman. And then people get riled up. And then they read the article and realize that it's like reasonable and not feel fired up. But that's what it was. (laughs) I was going to say, but I like this segment anyways. It doesn't just to bring up cool discussions. And I think this is an important discussion. Um, to talk about. I I mean, Shannon Box is here in Portland coaching, uh, but she just helped starters on the ground floor getting in on this academy system here in Portland, uh, this academy program that's all women-led. And um, I wrote an article about that because that's different. I I mean, I wouldn't be writing an article about an academy program starting, but the fact that you have Shannon Box and some other local coaches starting one and saying, we're going to have a female-led academy to help girls grow is something we don't see that often. And mm-hmm. yeah, that's a problem. Uh, there are plenty of women out there with a lot of experience that haven't been offered the same opportunities uh, or haven't been offered enough pathways to, to get into coaching it and share that experience at the highest levels. E- even if you might see some of these former players coaching at the youth level uh, in, in their local areas. So yeah, I agree with that. Uh, I would love to see a more of a pathway uh, for coaches and that being a priority for U.S. soccer. I think there's a lot of things that we can say need yeah, to be a priority are, yeah, for U.S. US soccer. soccer. has a lot of stuff on its plate, <laughs> but they need to make a little room, push to. something aside, make sure this is something they're not forgetting about. I think it's important, but you're right. It wasn't that hot of a take. So let's hear your take, Jamie. Yeah, I expect be... it to be scorching. <laughs> yeah, no, mine's, <laughs> mine's less hot. I shouldn't have even said that. Um, I think both of us maybe had trouble thinking about hot takes too much because there was already so much we were just thinking about talking about the Iron Front and the protests this yeah. weekend and everything the going hottest, on. The hottest so, issue, yeah. The hottest issue is that. But I, I did want to – one thing that after the game, Mitch Purse was talking – to the media about scoring two goals um, after the Thorns game this weekend. She scored two goals in the Thorns 3-0 win over Chicago. She was talking to the media after the game, and, and when asked sort of about how she was able to score those goals, how as she was able to be in those positions, they were both on rebounds, she immediately pointed to Mark Parsons and said, you know, it's about being in the right place in the right time, but I think if you go back, it's really a coaching element that I've been working on this week that Mark Parsons pulled me aside and said, you know, 
we need to make sure that you're not following the ball, that you're moving into these spaces. Let's work on that. And it translates into her getting two goals on rebounds in important moments in the game over this weekend. And my point that I want to make is just that I think we, we do talk about it a decent uh, sometimes. I mean, you did t- bring up Mark Parsons as a potential potential uh, person that should be considered for the national team job. But I, I think sometimes it gets overlooked because he's the coach of the Thorns and the Thorns are sort yeah. of expected to be one of the top teams in the league every year just because of the resources that the organization has. It gets overlooked just, I think, how good of a coach Mark Parsons is. And I, I think we've seen that, with, you know, Paul Riley has obviously done well at North Carolina. He's won coach of the year. I think Vlatko and, uh, and Laura Harvey are often considered two of the best coaches in the NWSL. But I think that Mark Parsons has to be up there in that conversation and has to be someone that's considered one of the top coaches in the NWSL as well, just by the work he's done outside of just leading the Thorns to championships and to the top of the league and uh, putting them in position to compete for those championships. You look at some of the players that have come through the Thorns system. Gabby Seiler, a rookie this year, was a candidate for rookie of the year before she went down with an injury. Haley Rasso might be one of the best examples. She was Mark Parsons scouted her out of Australia, brought her to Washington. She was then waived by Washington after he left and he brought her to the thorns. And she is now, I think up there with uh, some of the best attackers in this league. I think his ability to develop players and see talent. And he's was essentially both GM and coach at, Washington and plays a little bit of the same role here, although obviously the Thorns also have Gavin Wilkinson, but Mark Parsons is high, heavily involved in that side as well. I just think we need to be talking more about what Mark Parsons is as a coach and just how successful he's been in, in, in sort of all elements, um, all elements of the game in terms of coaching. Yeah, I think he doesn't get as much credit as other coaches because he coaches the Thorns, and the Thorns are the sort of flagship franchise in the NWSL. International players, if they're going to come to this league, they want to come here to Portland. And I think um, sometimes I think there's a little bit of East Coast bias as well as some of these awards maybe, but yeah, I think that people sort of overlook what Mark Parsons has done and Look, I said on this podcast that I thought he should be considered for the national team, so I clearly agree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we are big uh, Mark Parsons fans, probably because we cover him every day. But <laughs> And he is a wonderfully <laughs> nice person, but he's also a really good coach, too. So, <laughs> Well, let's talk more about Mark Parsons' team. And the Thorns, like I said before, beat Chicago 3 nothing at Providence Park this weekend. Really decisive result their third win in a row and also I I think when you kind of look back at the games their second really really decisive performance in a row the North Carolina game was a little bit more fluky but they have won those three games in a row they sit atop the NWSL standings in the lead for the NWSL shield Uh, they lead the NWSL on points and points per game is this Looking back at the game, do you think this is a Thorns team that we can expect to see going forward? Or are we going to see these types of performances for the rest of the season? Yeah, I mean, I think that you always sort of expect the Thorns to dominate at home. I think it's a standard that they really have set for themselves because they typically are so dominant. Um, I do think that, you know, the Chicago Red Stars are a really good team. I do think... 
they looked maybe a little bit tired. Um, they were coming off um, a tough stretch. But then, I mean, you can look at other results and see teams that in tight turnarounds have still gotten results. So I don't really think that's an excuse. Um, but I, I do think this is what we should expect because – you know, we've talked about it on this podcast before. The hallmark of Mark Parsons' teams is that they peak at the right time. And that's really a credit to him and his coaching staff. I mean, when we interview him and we sort of ask him questions about his approach and his process, he is very specific. And it's clear that he maps the season out very carefully. And they have goals that they are setting up and you know, looking at throughout the season, it's very deliberate in how they approach the season. And I think it's probably not a coincidence that the Thorns tend to peak toward the end of the season as they're going into playoffs. So now that we're sort of on the back end of the season, I think the Thorns have only five more games in the regular season. We're at a point where now we should expect the Thorns are going to be at their best. So um, yeah, I mean, this is absolutely what I think we should expect. What do you think? Yeah, and I, I sort of brought up the topic with Mark after the game, and he sort of deflected, uh, didn't want to say that they were at, sort of turned turn the corner might not be the right word because, of course, this team's in first place. They've been in first place for a significant portion of the season, but maybe put the gas on the pedal a little bit in the mm-hmm. last two games, that they're really becoming that Thorns team that we see under Mark Parsons every year at the end of the season, it feels like we have begun where we've started in um, to see that. So he, he was saying, you know, that the thorns are obviously going to lose players international duty this week. They don't have a game. They're not missing games for it, but they're going to miss training. He argued, well, maybe that's going to sort of impact our trajectory a little bit, but I feel at this point with all players in for the rest of the season, not missing games, even if they're not in every training session, I feel pretty good about the direction the Thorns are going in right now. And I think it really feels as if there is a gap between the rest of the league and Portland and North Carolina. And there has been for the last few years. But I, I, I think mm-hmm. with the way the Thorns are playing right now, it really feels that way. I think toughest game they have left is going to be that North Carolina game. They will go on the road to Seattle and Utah. We've seen them struggle um, at both places. But if they can play like they played against Chicago, and yeah, Chicago wasn't perfect. I think they were tired. Washington, I, I think, has been fading a little bit. Yeah. But they were just so dynamic in the attack. And the defense, I, I think, did a really good job in the second half, too. I have a lot of confidence that this team is going to continue putting in dominant performances. Yeah, for sure. I agree. Um, we sort of talked a little bit. I talked a little bit about Purse already mm-hmm. um, and talked about Mark, but she scores twice. Sinclair scored her 49th career NWSL goal um, and is in second Is it second in the NWSL and goal scored this season. I think we've talked a little bit about this, but to talk about a different attacker that wasn't on the field this weekend, we got a few questions about this again. And I think that had to do somewhat with the substitution pattern patterns. Laura mm-hmm. wants to know, Ford has been on the bench since the World Cup, and Cernogorcevic got subbed in versus Chicago instead of Ford. Is Ford really that low on the depth chart, or, or is the coach trying to send her a message, or what do you think that was about? Yeah, I forgot to mention this on the last podcast, but in that game against North Carolina, 
uh, where she was subbed out at halftime. I thought she looked a little too static in the attack, sort of um, just standing in place, not really um, creating pockets of space. Whereas I look at Purse, and she is such a hard worker on the field, and she's sort of constantly moving. She doesn't take plays off or stand around and, you know, wait to see what happens. She's just sort of constantly buzzing around, trying to find pockets to receive the ball or, you know, trying to find ways to drag defenders and create space. And I didn't see that from Ford uh, against North Carolina. And I, I wonder if that is part of it, where Purse has done such a good job of trying to, um, you know, work on her movement. Because Look, Purse is not a natural number nine. This is actually not the role that she had when she came into the team. She's always been sort of a wide player, either playing as a fullback or a midfielder. And she talked after the game about how this isn't really a familiar position for her. And I think because of that, I think Purse has been working extra hard on making sure that she is doing all the things that a number nine should be doing. And I think part of that is her movement. And that is something that has really impressed me about her. She's getting into those spaces that she needs to get in. And I mentioned this to you during the game that I think her finishing maybe needs a little work. That's something she can improve on. But as long as she's continuing to be in the right places, I think the finishing will come. That That's something that's going to get better. But she showed such good awareness, and she's really smart about where she's moving. And like I said, I think she's a really hard worker, and um, she keeps defenses honest. So I think it's possible that Parsons is just looking at what Purse is doing, and he's really happy with that. And I think he also probably wants to create a genuine competition where Purse obviously has been putting in the work, and... The way you create competition is you show that spots are earned, not given. And if if Purse is putting in better performances, not just in games, but in trainings, then I think that would make sense. I mean, it's tough because you and I cannot see training. We don't really know exactly what's happening outside of games. But I, I mean, that would be my guess, that Purse has just been better and has been performing better and um, that he maybe is you know, sending a message about what he wants to see from Ford. Um, but I don't know. What do you think? I think Mitch Purse has just won that spot. I, I, I just, yeah. the way she performed during the World Cup break, the way she continues to perform, like you said, it hasn't always been perfect. The finishing hasn't always been there, but she is making, she's frustrating defenses with her work ethic, with her speed, uh, with the spaces she's getting into. She's making things happen, even if they don't always lead to goals. And I think having, what she brings alongside players like Tobin Heath, Haley Rasso, Christine Sinclair is really working. And so there's no reason for the Thorns to change that at that point. And I think taking Purse off the field for Ford would, would be a demotion that's not deserved at this point. Um, mm-hmm. In terms of the substitution, I don't know that Ford has suddenly f- dropped that much lower on the depth chart. I think that the Thorns were winning 3 nothing and didn't need to make a immediate attacking sub necessarily. And maybe Mark Parsons saw an opportunity right. to get Serna Gorchevic on the field for the first time in, in weeks. Uh, mm-hmm. In a very, I'd have to look it up, but in a very long time. So yeah. I, I don't, when the score is 3 nothing, I don't really think too hard about the substitution patterns because mm-hmm. it could be for a million reasons and it's not, the game was over. Um, yeah. So. 
that's but, a good point. Yeah, but I think in terms of purse over Ford, Ford would have to do something pretty big right now, I think, to win that spot back because purse keeps proving that she is an asset, that she's making an impact, whether it's just creating plays, causing problems, or actually scoring goals like she did this weekend. Yeah, absolutely. I think we talked a little bit about the international duty. One thing I wanted to ask before we move on to listener questions, so I can go back and point this out if we're wrong later. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think at this point that Thorns are going to win the NWSL Shield? Ooh, um, well, the North Carolina Courage have played two fewer games than the Thorns have. And so the Courage sit five points back, but they definitely can make up that ground. And the Courage are playing some relatively weak teams in there. I do think they can make up some ground. I'm totally going to um, just cop out <laughs> of this question, though, and say, ask me after September 11th when North Carolina and the Thorns play against each other. Because I think that will tell. I, I think that game could decide it. Um, if not in terms of points, then just in terms of like what we're seeing from each team and which team is the better team. Um, so I don't know. I guess I'm just going to deflect. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I mean, the Thorns are points per game slightly ahead of North Carolina right now, like you said, with two wins. And they would be, they, if North Carolina won their next two games and were the same game total as the Thorns, they would be right back above Portland. I... I still think Portland's in a really good position at this point to win the NWL Shield. I think that September 11th game against North Carolina at home could essentially be the deciding game, like you said. And the Thorns beat North Carolina last time at home, but haven't really shown that they can play a really decisive game against North Carolina yet. They have struggled against them and did get a little bit of luck in that win against North Carolina Yeah, unless well. own goal comes back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, own goal was really on the Thorns' side. So I don't <laughs> think we learned a ton from that game. But when you look at the rest of the Thorns' schedule, too, they have a pretty favorable schedule. They go to Seattle, uh, which they obviously lost their last time, but that's they are capable of winning that game. They go to Utah, they're capable of winning that. Then they play Houston and Washington at home, which I, I think anything less than a win in those games is going to yeah, be a massive sure. disappointment. It potentially is going to come down to that North Carolina game. I am going to, I like saying things and then apparently being potentially wrong later with my uh, Timbers hot take. We'll see. Mm. Uh, But I'm going to say yes. I I think the Thorns are in a good enough position with their schedule and and being five points ahead of North Carolina right now uh, to be able to win the NWSL Shield. Okay, fine. Since you said it, (laughs) I'm going to say no. I'm going to say North Carolina is going to win the Shield. All Just right. so we'll have something different and yeah. one of us can make fun of the other at the end of the season. <laughs> Perfect. Um, one thing that I think is, I mean, maybe an issue, could be an issue for the Thorns going forward, is their midfield depth. We got a few questions about that. Uh, yeah. Laura wants to know how the Thorns are going to handle the midfield depth for the rest of the season, it, given that the Thorns seem to be racking up all the injuries in the midfield. Uh, Angela Salem out for the season, Siler out for the season. Andresinia and Celeste uh, have both had injuries as well. I, I think those are more minor. Uh, but given that we've had, they've had those injuries. Given that 
as recently as this weekend, I, I think they essentially Dagny was essentially mm-hmm. the midfielder besides Lin, besides Haran. Um, <laughs> oh, midfielder, that's yeah. not a good sign. <laughs> yeah. How do you how do you feel about the Thorns and their ability to manage the depth in the midfield uh, through the rest of the season? Yeah, well, I think that the loss of Gabby Seiler was a massive blow to the Thorns, and I don't think that can be understated. I think she was have, having a rookie of the year level season. And I mean, I doubt she would have won it because people tend to not recognize defensive players <laughs> and they vote for people who score goals. But I think she should have at least been in the conversation. And, you know, I asked Mark Parsons about, you know, losing her and what that means for the team. And he said that when voting comes around for rookie of the year, he hopes people don't forget about Gabby Seiler because she has been so important to the Thorns and she's been part of a team that, you know, has been number one uh, in the standings. And um, she's just, she really uh, had a good awareness of sort of where she needed to be and, you know, her positioning and making sure that she was shutting down attacks. So I think the loss of Gabby Seiler was huge. And, you know, now, you know, Dagny Brynja's daughter was in her place. I don't know if we know at this point yet the extent of Bure's injury or Andresina's, but that's not good. Um, I think I remember thinking that Emily Ogle looked pretty good in preseason, but she has only played 17 minutes this season. And those 17 minutes were during the World Cup, so I didn't even see them. I don't know how she looked, but... Um, yeah, I mean, it's a concern. I don't know what you do if you don't have enough players. Um, I, You know, they, they can probably move some players around. I think they do have um, – the nice thing about the Thorns is I think they have a lot of utility players who, you know, maybe it's not ideal, but you can play them in different positions. The Thorns have more depth than I would say maybe any other team in the NWSL has, so they have that going for them, but – yeah, I mean, this is a problem. I think just losing Gabby Seiler alone was a big problem. And then you throw in some of these other injuries. And I think we just have to hope that these players aren't injured for that long, right? Yeah, I think that the expectation is that Andresinia and, and uh, Celeste are going to be able to come back. Uh, so I, I think, assuming that happens, they, the Thorns are in a pretty decent situation overall uh, in terms of just being able to manage the midfield. I think uh, Serna Gorchevic is a player that could potentially move into the midfield. We've seen her play in the midfield before. Mm-hmm. I, I think going forward, we're going to see Lindsay Horan and Dagny Brainia's daughter as the starting midfielders. I, I think that's the expectation. I, I don't see that changing. Uh, but if there needs to be a substitution or there needs to be, because of knock on wood, an injury or something mm-hmm. else moving forward, I think the Thorns have enough options even if some of them are sort of makeshift options to potentially make things work but when you when you're coming up against really good teams like North Carolina that's not this necessarily the situation you want to be in the Thorns have lost something without having Gabby Seiler and mm-hmm. that could end up making a difference moving forward I, I don't think like I talked about the Timbers and the defense I don't think this is going to define the Thorns season because I think they have so many good players and, and enough depth in so many positions that they can manage having one position that is not exactly how they want it to be. But it, it it's far from ideal. I, I think Gabby Seiler was almost felt like the missing link that they needed in the midfield and maybe what was going to yeah. put them over the top this year. And they have to move on without her. 
it yeah it, it's um it's such a bummer that she got injured because she was having such a great season she's a young player and um she was sort of delayed because of injuries from even being able to have a season like this and be a starter so really uh really tough for her um but yeah now now the thorns just have to figure it out and um we wish gabby seiler well for her recovery um because that's a that's a tough injury for sure uh one final question from emma that i think um you're as about as qualified as anyone to answer do you think that (laughs) midge purse or emily Menges will be called up to the national team this year well thank you for saying that this is an opportunity to plug my book. It's called The National Team, The Inside Story of the Women Who Changed Soccer. Please buy it. It's about the U.S. Women's National Team. Um, I think this is a good question, but I think it does depend on who's going to be the new coach. I mean, I think there are a lot of questions about the national team right now and the future of the national team that we sort of just have to shelve and put on hold until we know who the coach is. I do think that if the next coach is an NWSL coach, which I consider very likely, I think that increases the chances of seeing Midge Purse or Emily Menges get opportunities. I feel, you know, just kind of looking at their past call-ups with the national team, like in my heart, I feel like Midge Purse has a better shot than Emily Menges. But in my brain, I think that Emily Menges is the player who really should be getting more of a look because Becky Sauerbrunn is 34. She's probably not going to be playing in the next cycle. There's going to be a vacancy along the back line at center back. And I think you, if you can get an experienced player in there, I think you should. And I think Menges, who's 27, she would be a good veteran option to play with players like Abby Dalkemper or Tierna Davidson. So I think that Menges should get an opportunity. I don't know if she will. With Midge Purse, I think she has a shot, but she needs to do it as a fullback. I I don't see any path for her to break into the national team in the position that she's playing now for the Thorns because the U.S. Women's National Team has so much attacking talent, and they don't need more. Like, I'm sorry, Midge Purse, but... That's that's not the path to the national team. She's just not at the level of the attackers that the U.S. women's national team has. As a fullback, then I think it becomes more interesting because, I mean, just look at the roster that the U.S. had at the World Cup. <laughs> Crystal Dunn, an attacker, was the starting left back. Who was Crystal Dunn's backup? It was Kelly O'Hara, the starting right back, who also, by the way, is a converted attacking player. The U.S. women's national team has no depth at fullback. They don't have any natural fullbacks. They don't have any backups. Like, they need more depth, and they need it now. Because I think they got maybe a little bit lucky or a little fortunate that during the World Cup that didn't become an issue. I mean, one injury, one red card, you know, yellow card suspension. I think they could have been in trouble. So I think if if Purse can break in as a fullback I I definitely see that as an opportunity that's the position that she got called in for the national team under Jill Ellis before Um, I don't know how you do that if you're not playing as a fullback for your club Uh, but it is interesting to think about because I mean Emily Sonnet is a center back for the Thorns but she has been a backup right back for the U.S. Women's National Team because they have not had any fullback depth so um, 
I think Purse would need to have to sit down with Mark or something and ask to be played as a fullback or something. But I think first we just need to know who the coach is going to be. And I assume they're going to still want to play that attacking style where the fullbacks are bombing forward. But if they change that, then that sort of changes everything I just said. But I don't really expect that. I think the U.S. has a style. They'll stick to it. But we do need to know who the coach is going to be first. Yeah, I think you covered that pretty comprehensively. I just the one thing I'd add, I guess, is it's if the coach is in place before January camp, which I don't know if that's uh, what's going to happen at this point or not. Let's I, hope. Yeah, I mean, the let's Olympics hope. The Olympics is coming fast. Let's hope. But assuming the, uh, there's a coach in place by January camp, I, I mean, we saw it with Greg Berhalter. Jeremy Abobasi was called into the U.S. men's national team camp. I, I think what you're going to see with a new coach, and you'll see this, I, I think, with almost any new coach, is they're going to try to expand the pool. And they're going to take an op- that chance in January camp to look at some players that maybe haven't been looked at before. So I think the fact that there is a new coach coming in is actually a benefit to players like Mitch Purse and, mm-hmm. and like Emily Menges. Because whereas with a previous coach with Jill Ellis, who might say, I already know those players, or I've already yeah. decided this, this, and that about these players, a new coach coming in might want to have fresh eyes. So, I, I yeah. mean, you even saw that with Ali Long, uh, honestly. I mean, she didn't get mm-hmm. called in for years, and I think a lot of that has to do with going to a camp with a certain coach and having whatever outing and then just sort of falling off the radar. Uh, yeah. So the changing coach, I think, is a benefit to both those players. But I, I, I agree with you that Purse might have the better opportunity, but it would have to be as an outside back. And one thing that um, I report in my book, actually, and I don't know if it's been reported elsewhere, is that a new feature of the collective bargaining agreement with the national team is that every December, the coach can have an identification camp, which means they, they don't call in any veterans. It's new players that the coach wants to evaluate. And Jill Ellis opted not to do the ID camp. Um for I guess the two times she could, but that is an option, and I expect that a new coach is going to want to take advantage of that. They're want to they're going to want to bring in new players and take that opportunity, and that could be a great time for you know players like Midge Purse and Emily Menges to get a look with the new coach, assuming they're in place by December. Yeah. We'll see. Um, like I said, the Olympics is coming soon, so let's hope they're a lot yeah. further with this coaching search than uh, has been publicly reported. But, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You never know, hopefully. Um, so, yeah, that, I think that's a good place to end the Thorns discussion for now. We don't have a Thorns game to predict because, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the Thorns are off next weekend for the should international we, break. Should we predict the U.S. Women's National Team game? I predict they win there. <laughs> I predict, <laughs> We're all set. Yeah, I predict they win, too. Um, I forget who they're playing, Portugal? They're playing Portugal. I predict like they win. Like 6-0 or something? By, by many goals. <laughs> they win by many goals. Multiple um, goals. Hot take. <laughs> yeah, if we're wrong, that, that, will, be the, that will be the shock. Um, <laughs> yeah, so no Thorns game. The international players are all leaving this week. They'll be back ahead of the Utah game, which we will talk about next week. But we do have a Timbers game to predict. Timbers versus Salt Lake. What do you have, Caitlin? Well, so 
you put together sort of the outline for the podcast and you fill in your predictions before me. <laughs> so you took my prediction. I just want to state that. So under duress, I'm choosing a different prediction, although it is the same result. I'm predicting a 2-2 draw and my side bet, I'm trying to think of new side bets that I haven't done before. So my side bet is that the Timbers cross the ball at least 30 times, which is a lot of crosses, but for the Timbers, not out of the realm of possibility. Yeah. So that's my side bet. That's a good side bet. I need to come up with better side bets uh, to yeah, match your side your, bet is terrible. To I'm match just your say it. creativity, <laughs> but I'm going to go with uh, a side bet I actually think is going to happen. So mm, okay, um, fine. I'm going to have a low level of difficulty here. Um, I'm going to break a 1 1 draw. I, I We'll see what the defense looks like, but I'm not confident right now that the Timbers are going to be able to win this game with the way Salt Lake's playing and with the injuries and with what the last two games have looked like. So 1-1 one, one draw. I'm going to say Diego Valeri scores. It's a it's a low-level difficulty. hot <laughs> take there, Jamie. <laughs> um, all right, before we go, we have our fantasy update. Uh, in our head-to-head league, in third place, we have the Perpendiculars. That's Roy. In second place, we have Sloppy, Sloppy, Sloppy. That's Steve. And in first place, we have Mark, who runs the leagues for us, Flicking Portland PTSC. And in our open league, we have third place, which I actually like this name because it's a very new name. <laughs> I just noticed yeah. that. We have the shirtless Valeries. <laughs> that's Clay. I'm, I'm going to assume that Clay changed that name recently because mm, up until recently, we've never seen that. Yeah. We've, we've never seen Diego Valeri's shirtless. Maybe he changed it after uh, his goal celebration where he took off his yeah. shirt and held it up to the crowd yeah. a la Lionel Messi. Yeah. He, he did that, but then for some reason, and I, I don't even know why, but Valeri walked into the locker room after the, at halftime of the Seattle game with no shirt on, and I, I don't... I just remember no, looking the, down the field. I, I think there was something where... Um, the Sounders and Timbers players actually exchanged jerseys okay. at halftime for it's ah. like a show of unity or something. Okay. And I didn't really know anything <laughs> about that. But on the on the ESPN replay, they had this feed of inside the tunnel before the players walked out. And I don't know why they had that. That clearly was not on the broadcast. But you could hear Stephen Fry go around to everyone and say hey, we're going to change jerseys at halftime. And everyone's like, okay, cool. So that was like some sort of show of unity. So okay. Diego Valeri was not just like <laughs> just not showing just off like, his guns or anything. Right. Like, that's why. <laughs> but we have, for whatever reason, seen him shirtless like twice in the, in the last few weeks. <laughs> There's been an uptick. very yeah. weird. Anyways, this, that, that name, that team name made me laugh, Clay. Yeah, so that, thank you. Uh, that was, that that was a special addition to this. <laughs> in second place, we have Gem City SC. That's Ryan and Portland Tobin FC, who is B, is still in first place. Uh, <laughs> I'm like still Shout laughing. out to the SC. Shout out. I like the SC. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That is all that we have today. Uh, we are Soccer Made in Portland. You can find us every week on Oregon Live and Stumptown Footy. You can also subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. And until next week, take care.